All right, this, uh, this Monday we are joined by Nick Carroll, head coach of Totino Grace High School, also um, co-owner, co-founder, right, of uh, Prep Sport yeah. or Prep Hoops. Yeah. Is that the right title? All right, yeah, so, uh, yeah. so uh, again, Coach, really, really appreciate you coming on. I know this is a busy time for you with everything uh, COVID-19 related with your, you know, obviously your coaching, but also your private business that you run. And so uh, thanks for coming on today. Of course. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to be on. All right, so we always start with our coaching Wikipedia page. So where'd you play? Where'd you coach? What led you to Totino Grace? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in St. Paul uh, in Highland Park. I played at Creighton Durham. Um, and then I went on and played at Hamlin for four years. Um, I played for Nelson Whitmore. So he had been the head coach at Brockport State in New York. And then actually um, one of your previous guests, Chris Hopkins, was, was one of my assistant coaches. Um, and then Joe Berger, who's the head coach at – uh, Eddie Dinah High School, and then also Jamison Rustoven, who was the head coach at, at St. Mary's. Um, those were all that, that was my college staff at Hamlin, and so I played at Hamlin, finished in in 2010. Um, my going into my junior year in college, um, started coaching AAU basketball for the Minnesota Magic, uh, and that's actually how I met my current business partner, Jake Phillips. Uh, we had both reached out to the Minnesota Magic to. Uh, I think just, you know, have some fun coaching in the summertime and um, the, the magic ended up linking us up to coach together. And Jake had just finished up um, a very decorated career at Carleton College. And so uh, kind of blossomed from there. Um, so uh, yeah, after that, um, coached for the Minnesota Fury after two years with the Magic. Um, and then after a couple of years with the Fury, went on to coach with Minnesota Pump and Run, which is now D1 Minnesota. Um, and then spent time coaching at Augsburg College, spent time coaching at, at Minnetonka High School. Um, and then now, obviously, at, uh, at Tatino Grays. So you obviously have some experience coaching or playing at the college level in the MIAC with Hamlin and a little experience there at Augsburg as well and AU and Minnetonka now TG. So what, uh, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned that have kind of guided your coaching uh, to where you're at right now uh, this season or this, this coming season? Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate to um, get exposure to a lot of different uh, types of personalities and coaching styles, um, you know, through my, my early playing career and then um you know into to coaching so uh you know when I was at Hamlin um my head coach Nelson Whitmore had come in from Brockport State and uh, he brought a pretty unconventional style to um a, a pretty traditional MIAC conference um where uh you know possession value is really important in that league um you know teams have have pretty solid structured offense obviously you know like the St. Thomas is the world like the top end um talent teams um, you know maybe loosened up their offense a little bit but they you know every year um they take care of the ball as well as anybody in the country but um you know w when coach Whitmore came in um you know he wanted to try to score 100 points a game and so that was, you know, for, for me, I think all kids get excited when they hear that stuff. Um, but I think actually putting it into practice and running efficient offense and being able to play fast, um, that there's actually, uh, you know, a lot of skill and, and strategy and method that, that goes into that um, for, you know, what shot quality looks like and tempo looks like and all those different things. So, um, but we also, uh, we mixed a lot of different stuff. You know, we ran the amoeba defense for a little bit in college. Um, we got up and pressured the ball and played, played full court and did some run and jump stuff. So we tried, I got exposure to a lot of different things as a, as a player. Uh, and then going straight out of, um, straight out of, 
college and then coaching at Augsburg, um, you know, Aaron Grease is, is an offensive mastermind. Um, Augsburg has had so much success. Uh, they love to shoot the three. Uh, they brought in a very specific type of player. And I think being at Augsburg really showed me um, it's not as much about you want to have really talented players, but I think having a system that, that fits, fits the players on your roster uh, really plays to their strengths. And then hammering skill development that fits into your ecosystem. I think, um, you know, a lot of times as coaches, we think that just by getting kids into the gym, um, you're automatically going to get better. Um, and, and we, we kind of go a mile wide and an inch deep where we got kids working on their ball handling and their shooting and all these different things, but we're not really emphasizing the types of shots they're going to make, uh, or take in games or take within our offense. And, um, Aaron Grease is unbelievable at getting game type shots. I'm very offensive minded. Um, and so that was beneficial. That was beneficial for me, uh, for me there. And so, um, and then, you know, Tom Dasovich at, at, I coached under Das at, um, at Minnetonka. Um, Das ran great sets uh, and he was really, um, I guess, formative for me in, um, rebuilding. You know, I, I, I look back at those days at, um, at Minnetonka, as, as we've built stuff at TG and kind of reestablished, reestablished culture and, and, you know, tried to, tried to make it be kind of a quote unquote basketball school. Um, you know, Das had come into a very average Minnetonka program um, and, and got things going in a hurry there. And, um, you know, a huge part of that is just, um, you know, really reframing the way that, that kids and families think about, uh, you know, think about their commitment to, to basketball and sports in the school across the board. Let's talk more about that skill development piece. So what, what would be an example of like a, a 60 minute skill, skill session or that you're running with your guys? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually, um, we have and with the COVID-19, um, limitations on how many kids you could have in the gym. Um, usually we will have skill development every morning for one to two hours, depending on how big the groups are. Um, we'll offer that for everybody in our program. So right now we're only able to do that with, a, with our varsity staff. Uh, we're only able to do that with our JV varsity guys. And so we have that split between two groups of nine right now. So we go um, two hours in the morning and we go two pods of nine. Um, and so we actually have themes of each day. So um, for us, we do all stationary shooting work Tuesdays and Thursdays. So um, and, and by stationary, I mean anything catch and shoot. So it could be on the run. Uh, it could be inside out stuff. Uh, it could be swivel stuff. Like it, it, it could be any number of things, but you're not going to dribble the ball at all when you take those shots. Um, and, and we just, we, we have, I think every program wants to make more shots. Shot making um, is critical for us with the pace that we want to play at. Guys being able to, uh, and comfortable shooting uh, inside out, right foot, left foot, left foot, right foot. Um, catching on the run, catching off pin downs, catching off curls. Um, so we're working through all of those different things um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So Mondays is going to be all rip throughs and jab stuff. So we talk a lot in our offense about um, being able to do everything off one to two dribbles. And it's not that we want to limit creativity. Um, and I know there's a bunch of stuff on social media with graphics and images, but you know, once you get over that kind of two, three dribble mark, um, that, that possession becomes a lot less efficient and uh and, and a lot less productive and so uh we work a lot on jab steps rip through stuff where you're getting people on your sides um obviously right now we can't do a ton of contact but working with guys finishing off contact holding off defenders 
Um, and then Wednesday stuff is going to be more of your open floor dribble attack stuff. So we're, we're really trying to get the ball off the rim, um, get out and run and have guys be able to make plays downhill. You know, we think our biggest advantages are within those first couple seconds of the possession. And so, um, for the, the, the ability for our guys to be able to attack full speed going downhill, um, is a crucial piece. Um, then Fridays we do a lot of ball screen stuff. So, uh, I'll actually break off our front court guys those days. Uh, we'll go through post progression stuff with them just so that they're getting a refresh on. We don't dump it into the post a lot. Like we have, we have right now, we have a 6'8, 265 pound kid, Joe Alt, that's a high major football kid. Uh, we have another 6'10 kid that's a junior who's, who's made huge progress for us. And then we have a 6'9 kid that actually just transferred in, um, who's a big time athlete, but, but we will not dump it in back to the basket in the post a ton. But we want those guys to be able to take advantage of those opportunities um when they present themselves so we'll do a quick refresh uh of our post progression uh and then our our guards will be doing all ball screen reads those days and then and then our front court guys will be doing a lot of um like pick and pop stuff because we have we have a ball screen continuity that we run for i'd say 40 percent of our possessions so yeah. yeah that's that's good stuff i wrote a ton of notes down. i like the the theme of the day right so kids know it, it, you know it's like an education you want to have you're not just doing you're not learning about five different subjects in a social studies class you're going to focus right. on one thing i think that makes yeah. a lot of sense and that's really valuable for for coaches to hear i want to talk a little bit more about your offense you know you guys play with good pace like you said you have a lot of skilled players but you also have some bigs and so what are some of your uh transition offense uh roles and responsibilities do you have set spots uh, do you play around the five and the other the four guards are kind of interchangeable? What is your transition offense philosophy and what does that look like? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It, a lot of it is predicated on on who gets the rebound and we don't have a situation for like every person on the floor, but it, it's, it's really one of two situations. If, if, our, our big is in front of the player. If the big is trailing the play, uh, we'll set a, a drag screen basically every time down the floor if our big is trailing the play, which is frequently with our – Joe Alt is our five right now. And um, when, when he's trailing that play, he's just such a big uh, blocker. So and, – and we obviously – you know, we have some pretty talented guards. And so um, trying to get them with a head of steam and transition, they're always encouraged to push the ball and advance the ball. We talk about push passes in our offense. Like when, when we're pushing in transition, um, we, we want to take – one or less dribbles um, once that ball gets advanced off the rebound. And so um, obviously, but, but we have, you know, when you have a kid like Taysen, when you have a kid like CJ O'Hara, you do want the ball in their hands a lot, but we always try to trust the fact that, um, you know, somebody that's open ahead of the ball, it's kind of the thing that you, you hear it from like fourth grade basketball up. Uh, if somebody's open in front of you, pitch the ball ahead, put pressure on the rim, make the defense contract so that we can get stuff going inside out. Um, as far as we, we did early in the season last year, um, we were at an interesting time because of the amount of talent that is in our program now in comparison to um, my first year, we had six seniors and they were, they were all pretty good. We had a few college level players, um, but then there was, there was kind of a transitional year there where um, we, the, the, our, our talent didn't warrant playing at a crazy pace. Um, and so we, from a transition perspective, um, we really tried not to push tempo at all the, the year before last. And then now this year, we've had a lot of discussions or over the last, I guess, 18 months, we've had a lot of discussions around this, this notion of um, skill development versus structure. And so early in the season last year, you know, we talked a lot about, um, about like a, a progression 
secondary. Like, like I, I, I was really close with Dave Thorson while he was here. And like Thor had a very structured secondary offense. And um, it, there, there's, I guess, reasonable minds can, can differ on it. But we, I, we've arrived at this notion that we want the best players to be able to make plays. We don't want them thinking, okay, now I have to pass the ball here and now I have to cut here. And so we had a secondary offense that we, we stuck with for maybe five, six weeks. And we felt like guys were just kind of running to spots as opposed to seeing the whole floor and making them play. And, and obviously, you know, you've had some awesome teams the past couple of years your best players are going to make a way better decision than you're going to make for them. And so, and, and they're, if they feel like they have that autonomy, they're going to be It's going to be more likely they're going to make big shots. It's going to be more likely that, that, that they're going to uh, kind of quarterback things going on in the floor. And so from, you talked about secondary, um, we, we try to push the ball with pace. Um, we try to rim run with the five, um, we always set that trail drag screen. If they're behind the play, we try to push the ball up the wings. We're trying to score in the first two to three seconds is really what it boils down to. I, I love the point you hit on just about the autonomy with your, with your basketball players. Cause I feel like, and that's you, you, our points per game. We, we score a lot of points as well. Um, you know, we're, we're not playing the Northwest suburban conference schedule that you guys are, but you know, we're, we're able to fill it up a little bit. And I think so much of what, what we've had success with is like you, you hit on it is like when a kid's thinking about the spot they need to go to, how can they shoot it with confidence? Cause they might not even be sure they're on the, they're in the right location on the court. And so just by having just like general concepts and areas, like you mentioned the drag screen, look for the rim run, I think provides kids with a, a way better palette to be successful offensively. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys had, you know, a pretty young team, but talented, like you mentioned. So how do you balance? Obviously, you guys were a top five or six QRF team the entire entire uh, season, top five or six in the polls as well, knowing that you had many haha at the end of it, jump into your section this year. So how did you balance youth development while also, um, you know, trying to develop youth development while also being competitive and, you know, obviously trying to win night in, night out and try to win a Northwest Suburban Conference championship and, you know, put yourselves in a spot to at least be competitive with many haha in a section final? I, this is yeah full disclosure I did not think we were going to be as good as we were this year like I didn't think we were going to have the success that we did uh, we went to Minnesota go for team camp in the summer and um, we knew that um, we knew that CJ and Tommy and Tayson were, were talented um, but I, I, I had just never had and I, I mean whether it's AAU high school stuff like I've had um, a, a decent amount of exposure to you know, I guess high school and grassroots basketball in Minnesota over the last 10 years, um, you just don't see three and four A teams that have a ton of success with their top couple scorers being freshmen. Um, but those guys played against, I think we, we, we looked at, we, we played against in, in like real varsity minutes, we played against three freshmen the entire year. And like we were playing three minutes, three freshmen, 25 plus minutes a game this year. We just didn't think we were going to be had you told me before the season we were going to win five or six games, it's not like I would have been jumping for joy, but I would have looked at our schedule and said that that's definitely a possibility. And so um, I would say that the the notion that it was going to be a developmental year for those guys, um, we, we, that that's exactly how we how we approached it. Now it's hard once you start winning some games, it's hard not to get not to get greedy. Like you keep pushing the bar up and up and up. Um, and that can be it can be positive, but it can also be dangerous because because they are those guys are still freshmen. And I, I want to be really clear too; <clears throat> those guys produced a lot of 
production for us, but like they have no idea what the hell is going on. Like none. Um, <laughs> and they're great kids and they want to do well. Um, but a lot of times, you know, and that's, we watch so much film because for, for them to, because in the moment they're saying like, coach, I'm running as hard as I can. I'm going as hard as I can. Like I am in a stance here. I did cut hard. I did bump this cutter. I did set that screen. And then you go back and you're like, dude, you didn't, you're not. And, uh, but you, their, their threshold for discomfort is so low. And so, um, so much of our success was the leadership of a Devin Berger, of a DJ Akpati, of a Joe Alt, of a Carter Workey. Um, and those guys who have been around us now for a couple of years, um, helping share. And, and it takes, it takes a selfless group to, cause I don't care what anybody says. If you're, if you're a sophomore going into your junior year, you don't really know who the freshmen are that are coming in, or you don't know some of the younger guys. Um, you're looking at it and saying like, well, like you're kind of projecting out in your mind, like what your role is going to be. And all of a sudden these young guys, I had it happen to me, my, my senior year going into, or going into my senior year at Creed and we, you know, we had Michael Floyd and John Nance and Broderick Benz. And we, we had, we had all these, you know, eventual pro athletes. And I'm not thinking about those guys at all. Cause I'm just thinking like, well, I'm, I'm going to move up to the next grade and then I'm going to, I'm going to be one of the studs. And um, so for those guys to, you know, I guess share that wealth or share that, that role and responsibility and understand that we were better with those guys contributing. Um, it, it made it a lot easier for it to, 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 to the point of your question to hit on that dual, you know, have success in the moment, but also understand that, that this is a development process. And we talked a lot about it being a two year season because we, 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 we return everybody on our roster, um, which is, is a unique thing for um, obviously, you know, having, having the amount of success that we did last year. Talk about the culture of accountability that you've created within your program. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's um, it, it's the the time at Prep Hoops, and I know we're going to talk about kind of the company side a little bit later, but um, it's it's been so valuable to you know be involved in in an early stage business um, because you the, the, I think especially as a young coach and like I've even. I've even evolved, you know, going into year four now, I think you want to control every aspect of, of your program. You want to have your footprint on, on everything. Um, and I think as, as time goes, you start to realize this, this notion of self-policing, uh, you know, amongst the team and um, not overstating stuff, not trying to be too loud, not trying to be too boisterous about it, but, you know, just very clearly conveying, you know, what the expectations are and having, um, having a baseline of, and not having too many rules, but having the rules you do have be ones that are absolutely non-negotiable. You know, whether it's, if, if a kid walks into the gym late, we, we've had, um, you know, Taysen walked into practice late, um, the day before our first game in sections. And like, we sat him, he didn't, he didn't play. And this is, this is one of, I, I believe one of the more talented skill wise one of the more talented guards I've ever seen in Minnesota and we sat in the first game of sections DJ Akpati the year before was late um the day and, and he had he had we're not talking you know a half hour late they're they're walking in you know two minutes late to their first hour class and um I'm just I'm I'm big on that punctuality component like when you got to show up at something and um so that's that's a non-negotiable for us and so I think having having rules that really matter to you about body language the way the guys communicate without having it be a dictatorship or have it be something where the kids fear you 
um, conveying the importance of, of some of these things that we do have, have some control over. And then when the kids start policing those things, um, you know, it, it makes, it makes all the difference in the world. And that's really the point that we've hit now where, you know, we're not begging guys to come to workouts. It's, it's really more like, Hey, we got a lot of guys competing for minutes. If you want to come, we got a good opportunity for you to get better, but I'm not going to sit here and hold a gun to your head and say, you need to do these things. Uh, but I think we've hit a point now where guys, um, you know, they feel like they're hurting each other more than they're hurting their own personal brand, which I, I think is that that's when you can really start to get some work done. Yeah, that's a great point where you, it, it, that it's that accountability of not letting your teammates down. Cause you know, they know, Hey, you know, I got, I might go to this social gathering ever till midnight and I'm not going to want to get up in the morning and go play basketball, but whatever, I might not get better today, but now if the teammates know you're letting them down, I think that that policing amongst the group and just like not even where the kids have to be like, get your ass to workouts tomorrow, but just yeah. like, they know if I'm not there, they're going to be pissed and be pissed to me the next day when I show up. I think that's so, so important. You mentioned on time, what's one more of your, uh, your, 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 your non-negotiables that you have with your kids? Body language, you know, and, and that's, it, it's, we, we run that risk, right. As, as coaches, cause these kids get, get so much coach speak. Um, there's so many, you know, little video clips on social media and, and you try to try to put this stuff to kids in a way that they can digest it or the way, in the way that they're interested in consuming it. And so kind of meeting them where they're at. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think this, this notion of, um, how visible you are at all times, like everything is being filmed. Now your kid, like your teammates are always watching you. And um, the, quite frankly, like that was, that was a big thing for us, especially with our younger players with, with, with how talented they are. Um, you walk into a youth basketball tournament, like those kids are one year removed from playing youth basketball and where emotions are on your sleeve and everybody's yelling at the refs and you're right breathing on the court. So like, the, the sway of one possession here or there, uh, it, it could impact guys a lot. And then that starts to snowball amongst the group. And it doesn't, you don't even need to say anything. So this idea of, you know, sit up and like when you're on the bench and like have your elbows up on your knees, like, like be, be engaged in the game, be ready to go. And uh, so body language and like reaction to stuff, we always talk about having, uh, you know, a couple of second touch point with some, like if somebody, if, if a ball goes out of bounds, if, if, if you have a bad shot, like somebody go physically, You know, I was listening to, uh, I think it was one of the redraftable ringer pods with Bill Simmons. I think it was on the 2003 draft. They were talking about Carmelo Anthony. And they talked about, you know, in the, with NBA guys like Jason Tatum, they use, for example, how much more mature these guys are coming into the NBA because everything is on social media. They know if they're at an EYBL event and they're an idiot, that's going to follow them all the way into their college recruitment, into their, into their pre-draft stock, and into their NBA career. And I feel like you almost hit on that. We're obviously in a much smaller sense you know, our high school kids are starting to realize that as well, especially the kids who are have scholarship aspirations because they know like one bad, you know, clip of them being an idiot to a ref or getting into it with an, you know, an opponent or a teammate, like that's going to follow them and you know, that's yeah. going to hurt them. So I think there's definitely downfalls to social media, which we could, people could talk for hours about, but there's definitely some positives and it's that self-regulation where kids know that, you know, people are always watching. Is that something you've noticed as we kind of transition now to your uh, business side of this? something that you've noticed with kids, you know, throughout the recruiting process, even in the handful of years that, you know, you've been operating prep hoops. Yeah. You know, kid, I would say that there's, yeah, there's, there's more, um, I don't know if anxiety is the right word. I think there's, there's more consciousness of, of recruitment in all aspects and it gets, it gets a little bit dangerous because 
like we, we all want to like microwave this recruiting process and we want it to happen like right now. And none of us really know, um, or a lot of the families just have no idea how it actually happens. They just know they want it to happen. And so, um, yeah, from a, from a consciousness on social media perspective, uh, I think that that's definitely true that there also is, you know, like we were, we're in the midst of like a, a cultural, I guess, shift. And, and, and part of it is just like the music kids listen to. Part of it is, is just this, this culture of like, you almost want to look like you don't care that much. Like it's dorky to act like you really care and to just like kind of put yourself out there and say, Hey, these are my goals. This is my passion. And I'm going to pursue this, um, fearlessly. And so, um, you know, I think specifically from a social perspective, um, yes, there are definitely, you know, with tools like Huddle, with tools like NCSA, uh, with, you know, some of the stuff that we do at Prep Hoops, there are definitely some kids who take advantage of that to help help build and market their brands um, and, and kind of build a social profile that way. Um, but I, I still think that I think that kids are are behind or I think a lot more kids miss the boat on how to truly brand themselves when it comes to uh, when it comes to that recruiting process. And I'm not just talking to vision one kids. I'm talking about kids at all levels, like where, you know, a coach could pull you up on Instagram or Twitter and like they could get to know you a little bit before even communicating with you and you could build positive equity with them. Um, you know, b- before you guys ever have a, have an initial conversation. So I uh, will take a step back here. Talk about the history of how you know, prep hoops came together. Obviously you mentioned yeah. you and J- you and Jake were working uh, with Minnesota magic. And I know you guys did a little, I think you did a trip to, I think he was still at Augsburg once yeah. you guys were coaching there together. I'll yeah. uh, so yeah. just give the background about, you know, a couple minute oral history about how that came about. Yeah, for sure. So Jake and I met um, in what would have been, and it's, it's jogging me the, the actual year. So it, I, it was after my sophomore year, after his senior year. So that would have been 08. So the spring of 08, we met, coached the Minnesota Magic team together. Um, he started going to grad school at, at the University of Minnesota at the Carlson School of Business. Um, he was getting his MBA and, and I started a North Star Hoops report, which is, is the Minnesota chapter of, of and um, Jake, uh, reached out what would have been, you know, within a few months and he was taking an entrepreneurship course at Minnesota. And, um, he, he just said, Hey, you know, can I, can I basically take a look under the hood and just kind of see what you're doing? Like I, 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 he was on the academic side of it and he, he wanted to, you know, just look at a business and I, I had no business plan. I had no, this was totally like a passion project, um, you know, an opportunity to make some supplemental income, but, but didn't have, um, like some picture of world domination, I guess. And, um, you know, when, when we sat down and started talking, um, it was the, the, the conversation kind of started to, to build momentum around, um, you know, what the level of interest would potentially be in another sport or in another state or, or even cross genders. So, um, you know, fast forward, uh, we, we went into a 50, 50 partnership together. Uh, we started North star girls hoops and North star football news. So we actually initially, thought, okay, you know, should, should we try to try to, I guess, dominate the prep sports market in Minnesota first? Um, girls basketball actually launched better than boys basketball did. Um, and then football, football had a, had a pretty good launch, but was, was very nuanced in, in the way that that market works. And so um, our first expansion site was in April of 2014 when we went to Iowa. Um, and now we're, uh, you know, way fast forward, um, 
think we just launched our 81st website. Um, boys basketball, girls basketball, volleyball covers the lion's share of that. But we, we have rapid expansion now going nationally in football. So we just launched our fifth football state um, in California. And, um, you know, we're adding a couple of states a month right now for um, for the different websites that we have. So um, Jake acts as, as our chief executive officer. I act as our chief growth officer. So I work on the event side of the business, um, really manage like all of our partnerships and do all, all the sales on that side. Um, and any like new business development opportunities falls under me. Uh, so really like revenue growth. Um, and Jake um, really runs the business day to day. So uh, manages a lot of the staff, um, the IT, finance. Um, he, he has more of a, a macro lens uh, into the business and, and he's, you know, he, he is as, as good of a, of a leader and, um, just a, a, a an integrator as uh, as I've been around and all this stuff. So it's 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 been a, a great marriage. I'm not sure if you know the background, but I'm a Brainerd guy. Our brothers, my brother was the same age as Jake, so I watch him make a lot of. You mentioned his uh, uh, illustrious career that he had at Carlton. I watch him make a lot of big shots throughout his yeah. uh, throughout yeah. his youth basketball career at Brainerd. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, hats off to being able. To, you know, us Brainerd people can be a little uh, can be a hard, little hard to work with. So, uh, <laughs> uh, hats off to you for being able to deal with uh, uh, working with a Brainerd grad on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. So you obviously run the business. Uh, uh, you're in charge of the growth, as you mentioned. You're also uh, coaching a high school team and also with a growing family yourself. So yeah. how do you balance all three of those and make sure that you're not, you know, letting one side of it drop? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm fortunate because the, the two biggest um, time commitments in my life really dovetail nicely. Like the calendars of, of those schedules really work well together. It's really when one ramps up, the other is is um, kind of ramping down and, and it's a lot of, um, you know, similar types of interactions and conversations. So, um, you know, with, with the uh, grassroots events, um, the earliest events that are going to take place, those are going to be uh, like, like Florida and California. Those events are going to start, um, you know, like mid March to late March. Well, that's, that's right when state tournaments are wrapping up for, uh, for high school basketball and those will run through August. Um, and so, but with June being a down period for, for grassroots basketball and AAU teams. So we're not running a bunch of tournaments. So really when, when I can have my hands on our guys at TG, um, that that's when we were, we're not doing a ton on the event side. Um, and it's never, there's never a point where it's like, you're a hundred percent on one and zero on the other. But I think that that's part of the dichotomy with, uh, with high school coaching in general. I think a lot of times people don't, don't fully appreciate whether you're a social studies teacher, you're running a fortune 500 company. Um, you're wearing multiple hats at all times while you're coaching a high school sport. And, um, so there, there is, there is the, the dual balance, but it's, it, it allows me to be, to be accessible uh, at the times I need to be accessible. I'm able to get to, you know, all practices, all games, uh, you know, all scouting reports and, and be at school when I need to be. Um, and if I need to make stuff up either early in the morning or late at night at home um, or, or at our office, wherever uh, I'm able to do those things. So um, I, I'm, you know, one of the very few fortunate people that, um, you know, basketball is, is truly, uh, you know, my entire life. So you mentioned when you were, you gave the example and you were playing at Creighton and the pro athletes that were coming up behind you and the same thing at TG now, and you got a really good, you know, freshman coming in that the juniors or seniors might not know about off the same kind of chip off the same block here with that. 
when you have a kid that is uh, thinks they're a Division One talent, uh, right? But they're you're seeing them. You know, maybe that's a kid in your program. Maybe that's a kid yeah. that you're seeing at a combine. But they're really a Division Three talent, which is not. My basketball is really good. Division Three basketball is exceptional yeah. across the country. Across the country, how do you have those conversations without making it seem like it's like an abrasive conversation, or you're complete, completely uh, the kid feels insulted about how you're evaluating them as a prospect? Yeah, so I think the commitment that that we make to guys is that we're, we're going to make sure, and I think we we have a, a unique ability to. Um, I've been really fortunate and some of it has to do with, you know, coaching at D one Minnesota and, and having as many division one kids as, as we had there, every kid shouldn't say every kid, a lot of kids want to play division one basketball. I think they want to play division one basketball. I think they kind of have an understanding for what that looks like. Most of the time it's not because they think they're better than they are. I think it's because they don't realize how hard it is and how unique it is to be able to get a scholarship at any level, like, like, like DJ Akpati for us, um, he's been with us a couple of years. Like he just got offered effectively a full scholarship at the university of Mary. Um, and I, he, he was, he was excited and, and he was super pumped about it. Um, but I, I also wanted to be sure that I, no matter what his reaction was, I wanted to make sure that I grabbed him and let him know how rare and unique this is that you get an opportunity to get a free education based on your ability to play a sport. And um, I think that's, that's one thing that's been dangerous about social media. Like we see these offers get posted out there. We see, you know, like for Minnesota, we see Ryan James tweet these things out there and, and it almost seems like it's easy. And uh, that's just, that's a really dangerous, that's a really dangerous topic or really dangerous thought. But when you, when you have, um, so for us, what we commit to kids is that we will, that there will never be a, a, a staff that will be more communicative with college programs than us. So we will make sure that colleges know who you are in the way that we email and the way that we send stuff out via text and the way that we help you put highlight tapes together and get stuff distributed. Um, but I also tell kids, I will never lie to a college. Like if you show up late all the time to practice, if you act like a dick to your teammates, if you, um, if you shot, you know, 36% from three, if you like, I'm not going to lie to colleges about what you've done. Um, and that's helped us build equity with schools over time. So we're, we're never going to oversell a kid, but we will make sure that schools get in front of kids. So, you know, our, our junior class last year, um, due to a you know, combination of guys that we had and, and being able to get guys over, you know, we had over 100 colleges that came to our open gyms in the fall. And those kids are getting up and down. They're playing. Uh, they're, so some days they're just doing skill workouts, depending on who's there. Well, I mean, college coaches get paid to decide who's good enough and who's not. And so, you know, we, we, what we commit to is we'll make sure that we get you in front of people. But then once the market speaks, um, we need to take a step back and, and determine, okay, what makes sense here? You know, Devin Berger, that's on our roster right now. Um, he has Northern Sun Schools recruiting him, but he also is, um, you know, one of the best students in our building. And so he's got the, uh, you know, U Chicago's, the Emory's that, that are interested in him. And uh, so we're working through these things right now because it's like, okay, well, if, if you could, you know, potentially be a scholarship. are you willing to, uh, you know, forego some of your, I guess, academic pedigree 
to to try to get a, a cheaper tab on your college or, or would you go to a school we had a kid charlie jacob a couple of years ago he's playing at wash u right now well i mean you could look up on on their website but wash u is probably 65 70 grand a year all in and charlie chose to go that path uh, and he's having an awesome career. He's having an awesome time. Um, and, and, you know, he, he'll, he'll reap the benefits of that later. So uh, I think when it comes to, uh, you know, kids having unrealistic expectations, I think we try really hard just to educate, educate kids on the numbers, what the percentages are of kids that are coming out and going out to certain levels. Um, even in the state of Minnesota, I mean, you could go through and ask like the 2022 class right now, you could ask those kids and it's a very good class in Minnesota, but you could ask those kids, <clears throat> like if you went down that list, you'd probably have, you know, a couple hundred kids who think they want to play division one basketball. Well, the numbers tell us in Minnesota that, that like a, a good year, you're going to get, you know, 13 to 15 division one players at best. So are you in that top 15? I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, and, and you could say you're, you're going to defy the odds that that's great. And, and we hope that's the case, but you also need to make sure that you're comfortable with what plan B might look like. Your ranking system is very in-depth. Uh, as a coach who's had kids in the ranking system, I've, I've always thought they've been extremely fair. And I've seen kids that have been ahead of my guys and below my guys, and it seems like those have always been um, very valid and accurate ratings. How much do you see from your guys' – you know, you're, you're ranking kids, you know, 250, uh, 300 kids at a time in, in, in a class within the state of Minnesota when there's only, I don't know what, maybe 50, you know, maybe 70 – um, spots in colleges. If you think about the MIAC schools, the NSIC schools, right. and the University of Minnesota. Obviously, our kids are going to other states as well. But you know, I'm just throwing a number right. out at 70. And so, how many right. times do you think that those rankings are used by college coaches versus just okay? Yeah, I know where this kid is at, but they're gonna go do a lot of the work themselves and find yeah. out where that kid is at as a prospect. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, so we as and the, it, tooting our horn a little bit, we're, we're by far and away. The, the largest scouting service in the country for, for boys and girls basketball. Just, just shoot by sheer numbers of college programs that are subscribed across our websites. And almost all of those colleges subscribe to either five states or to the entire country, which, you know, at a macro level tells you that there is a level of trust and equity that, that's being put into those rankings. Uh, we talk all the time about it doesn't necessarily matter where – where a kid is is ranked specifically as a number and I know that that's part of where the discussion comes in like wait like number 74 played way better than number 70 at this tournament and it's like I, I get that but it, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter for the purposes of college programs like they don't care about that at all um, but I college coaches use those as a benchmark to say okay at, at a large level uh, if, if I'm a high major division one school, so if I'm North Carolina and, and so a lot of these schools subscribe across the country and we're, we're one of dozens of resources that they're using, but if North Carolina comes in and they're looking at, you know, rising juniors, they're probably not going to look outside of the top five kids in our rankings. And, and I can tell you right now, we usually don't mess that, that like that part of the rankings usually don't mess that up. Like, like usually the top five kids are, are in the top five somewhere and you could reassemble them if you want, but like that, that saves those guys hours because then they just know, okay, so these are the few kids that, that we need to, we need to be considering because they know that in Minnesota, there's probably not going to be more than in the best years, like the 2017 class, there was, I think number seven went to a mid-major. So that you had six high major kids and even 2020, the class that just went, you know, I don't, I think, well, you got Ben Dawson, 
uh, Jalen, Dane, Stephen Crowell, Kerwin. I'm trying to think if there's another high major kid in that class. There, there, there may be. Yeah, six, eight at the most, right? On a really good year, you'll get eight at the most. Yeah, exactly. And and those kids will be doing so well that they would get, you know, they would get recognized by 24-7 sports or some national service in other ways. So um, we have always erred on the side of trying to get more kids included in the rankings because uh, there are so many different types of roster spots, you know, and, and you have it. Like, uh, you know, where like a crown college may reach out to you, like, like a UMAC, a UMAC program that has a good culture in their program and, and, and has, you know, a, a, like a faith-based element to what they're doing or has um, like different, but it's just a different level of basketball. You know, you may be able to get the seventh or eighth kid in your rotation like they may be able to go play college basketball and in a good high school program, I'm literally, I'm looking at our workouts right now saying that there are kids that are going to play maybe no varsity minutes for us as seniors that could go play college basketball just based on the experience that they're getting with us day to day. And some of the guys that they're competing with every day, they could potentially go play college basketball in, in like at, at a lower end Mayak school, at a UMAC school, at a lower end YAC school. Uh, and I'm not saying that they'd be the best player in the world, but when you rank out that far, it gives schools an opportunity at those much lower levels to, because that's the, the, the crown colleges of the world, the Crookstons of the world, or I'm sorry, not the Crookstons of the world, but the Minnesota Morrises of the world. A lot of times they're, they are in the back part of those rankings trying to figure out which kids actually want to go play college basketball. Because um, a lot of times you have rural kids or dual sport kids or kids who may be considering, you know, different paths or picking a college based on academics or other things. So they have to cast a wider net. So we just try to give a wider net on the back part of those rankings so that schools have more kids to be able to sift through. It's pretty safe to say the top 25 kids in the rankings, if, if they're not a, like a high major football player, most of those kids are going to go play college basketball, you know, and, more, more than not. And as a coach, like I said, every year probably has, you know, one to three kids somewhere in the, you know, in the top 150, we've been you know, lucky enough where we're at, you know, as a 3A school, just off the, you know, just off probably the Metro line, 15 minutes yeah. north of Elk River here. You know, it's, it's nice to kind of have that for me. And, and my end is to have those conversations with kids. Be like, you might think you're an NSIC kid, but like right now you're 77 you know, yeah. maybe you're up, maybe you're up to 60, right? Maybe you got caught on the wrong day. Like you said, yeah. right? 77 yeah. to 70 to 52 might be a gap, but yeah. at least you can start to have those conversations with kids and it gives coaches, I feel like some support and some data to have some of those tougher conversations where it's not just me being an ass being like, Oh, coach doesn't think I can play at the next level. It's like, well, you know, you've played AU and you're here, 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 here. These are the kids that are getting the offers. And so you know, it really helps from a coaching lens uh, and being, being able to have those conversations with, you know, and we have, you know, half dozen kids right now that are, you know, going to be playing college basketball next year. And that's great. And they, you know, I think maybe one, maybe two have, you know, some sort of scholarship at the NAIA level. So just being able to have those conversations based off rankings has been beneficial to me. I know personally as a coach, yep. um, a couple of things here, what skills are you noticing uh, that translate best for high school athletes as they move towards uh, either division three, division two, or division one levels? Yeah, I think it's more about like the work habits um, and just understanding how much of a, of a job it is. I think that that gets lobbed out to kids a lot right now where it's, it's this idea that um, like, you know, we try to hammer it down kids throw. It's like, you know, this is a job. Like these are the best days of your life. And like, like when you get to college, it's going it's, to, it's not that it's miserable. It's just a lot. Like when you talk about um, 
scouting reports, you talk about travel, you talk about managing the academic side, you know, getting back from a road trip at, at one in the morning and then having to be at 8 a.m. class the next day. Like there's so many components to um, playing at the college level that, um, that exist off the court. And then you have to be able to perform on the court. And so uh, I think the kids who genuinely, uh, like genuinely love to play um, and, and love to, uh, you know, I guess, figure out different ways to get better and improve themselves, um, that more than anything. And then, and then, you know, physically on the court, just the ability to make shots. I mean, it's, it's like the college game. Um, I was talking to a kid who played for me a couple of years ago uh, who just transferred to Northern Iowa. He was at George Mason and transferred to Northern Iowa. And, um, you know, even – and he played at a, at a good mid-major A-10 school. And he's, like, just blown away by those kids' ability to make shots. And so – um, and you talk about it a lot as a coach, like that's, that's something that, that you can control, uh, like your ability to, to, to take and make shots. Um, so shot making is a premium, taking care of the ball is a huge premium. You know, that definitely keeps kids off the court early in their college careers, just like not being able to value a possessor, not having possession value when you get in, um, when you get to the college level. Um, so yeah, I would say being able to manage the college schedule for, for off the court perspective, and then, um, like being able to knock down shots at, at game speed while you're tired, while you're fatigued, while you're processing scouting reports and stuff. And then um, uh, just being able to take care of the basketball. What is the best thing? Uh, and you mentioned it with, the, with those kind of three, taking care of the basketball, making shots and being able to adjust to the, you know, the college level schedule, uh, which all great things. I think that's going to be across, you know, division three, division two, II, division one. You know, obviously it's not going to be as extensive of a schedule at a division three school versus division one, but still going to be a significant step up from your high school, high school expectations and obligations that you have as a, as a high school athlete. And so what are some things that, you know, high school coaches can do uh, to help their players uh, learn some of those skills or prepare them for the next level? Yeah, that's, um, that, that, that's a really good question. I mean, I think obviously, um, Every high school coach, kids know when you're faking it. Um, kids know when you're when you're not being being authentic, and and I don't know that it's sustainable to ever like be somebody that you're not. Um, what one of the biggest things that I think we're we're in the midst of right now is this transition of um, it's not a new regime of coaches because it's it's, it's kind of happening like it, through a trickle effect. But if if I were to talk to you or I were to talk to Brian Schnettler or I were to talk to Chris Hopkins you know, the, the whole philosophy around like how much time they're actually spending to like build their program um, and, and like their expectation of their expectations of what that looks like. Um, I think it's become more of this like 24, seven, 365 thing. And, and I think um, like younger coaches getting in, I think there are less young coaches getting in be, because of some of the trepidation around those things. Um, Cause it is like, it's financially, it's, it's a loss. Like for, for, for most of us, um, some of the bigger schools, obviously like you get into being able to run massive camps, there's financial opportunity there, but for the most part, like we're working for, for pennies on the hour. And so, um, I think being, being highly visible, um, and giving your kids a ton of opportunities to get into the gym would, would be a huge recommendation for me from a skill perspective. But with that being said, um, it, there, there aren't going to be for, for a lot. There, there are a lot of coaches, especially coaches that, that have been around for a while that, that would prefer that, that the job be really from November to March. 
and that they're totally warranted in feeling that way. And there are definitely, I mean, there are guys like Kenny Novak over at Hopkins. He's in their gym every single day. So it's not like, it's not an old versus young thing, but I think it's just the position has changed a lot over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, even where when I was in high school and like Jerry Klein was, so I was on Jerry Klein's first team that he coached at Creighton and our open gyms, we had, we had no skill development. Our open gyms um, were maybe a couple times a week. We played in one summer league, but you were kind of left to your own devices in the off season. And where today that their offseason obligations at Creighton are much different because the, the families are expecting more um, and, and the expectations on coaches are just higher. So um, I think as much as you can open up your gym and be accessible to your kids and give them enriched skill development opportunities, whether you're hiring somebody, um, you know, like, like, like Reed, I don't know if you guys have had Reed Alice come, come work with you guys. Like, like we, we've had Reed come in with uh, Yep. You get it. Gotcha. Um, sorry, let me get We're always trying to get different voices, uh, different people coming in and working with our guys, um, whether it's different speakers, whatever. I think um, just really having the kids have no opportunity to come back and say, hey, like, like we didn't have the resources to be successful. Um, so, and that's in an ideal situation, like, like I, I am at all of our workouts. And so for me right now, like I have enough gas in the tank. My schedule allows me to, it's not, I don't see, I don't think that that makes me better than any other coach out there. I don't think that makes our program better than anybody else. I right now for where we're at in our program, I believe that like my visibility, because if, if I'm at everything, it makes it a lot tougher for you know, a kid to come back and say, well, coach wasn't there. Like, why would, like, why would I have to be there? It must not be that important. Um, so even if somebody else is running our skill stuff um, and we're trying to get them a different voice for that day, I'll still be involved on the court in that workout. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think just, just having your gym be wide open, that, that was the commitment that we made right away at TG and it, it benefited us a lot. Um, and, and quite frankly, for us, not having a youth program and not having a, a younger portion to our school, um, getting young kids exposure to our building uh, in the Twin Cities metro area because uh, we have kids that are from all over the place you know like we have kids that come all the way from Orono uh, or from Rogers and so um, you know getting kids exposure to our building by opening our gym up um, has been a beneficial thing for us. Coach uh, last question this is a quick one here coming from Brad Bigler you probably saw this on Twitter who's winning one-on-one -on -one between you and Reed? <laughs> Uh, I, I just feel bad for anybody that has to watch that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know the game would be played below the rim. Um, and there would be a lot of three pointers shot and a lot of palms on knees for that game. Um, but I, I think that would probably have to be a few part series to be able to get an 11 point game in <laughs> coach. I appreciate you coming on. Definitely a different perspective with your side of it with prep prep hoops. Uh, I appreciate you taking your time here out of your Sunday to come on and record with us. No, it's been great. Keep up the great work, man. Thank you.